You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Over the past couple of weeks, we have approached some pretty serious matters uh, in regards to the end times. We've talked about the uh, coming rebellion or the coming apostasy where there is coming a time in the future where professing Christians, people who outwardly seem to be a part of the church, seem to be followers of Jesus, are going to rebel against Christ. They are going to fall prey to the rebellion and the deceit of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, as Paul talks about him here in this passage. And because of that, they will leave the church and they will follow his teachings, his false teachings about himself, about who Jesus is, about how the way the world functions. And they will fall prey to his deceit. And this man that we talked about over the past couple weeks, this man of lawlessness will find his power from Satan. And he will rise to power only because God allows it. Only because God brings this as part of his plan. Part of his plan to receive glory and honor. And so we've, we've highlighted the, the effectiveness, the power of the Antichrist. But we've also done that in lieu of the fact that God is completely in control of the Antichrist. That nobody falls prey to his deceit except for those that were already perishing. We said that Satan is unable to steal anyway, anyone from God's people. He's, he's unable to steal anybody that's truly saved. He only deceives those who were already deceived. People who have already um, made a choice about the gospel and are now perishing because of that choice. So we come to chapter 2 once again. I want to read verses 1 through 12 to set the context. And then we're going to be in verses 13 and 14 today. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word. Or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So Paul is encouraging them. The day of the Lord is not here yet. Before Jesus returns, we will have the apostasy or the rebellion, this falling away. And then we will also have the rise of the man of lawlessness. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So we talked about a current deception that's already here, that the man of lawlessness, his work of deception has already started. 
John tells us in 1 John that we hear that the Antichrist is coming, but even now there are Antichrists that are present who bring false teaching, who are seeking to deceive. So we are to be on guard against that. We're not to be deceived by these false teachers, these false Antichrists who come proclaiming a message that is not consistent with the message of Jesus. We said that Jesus is willingly delaying his second coming. We talked about the fact that, yes, Jesus can come at any time, but it seems that he is willingly delaying that coming until two things at least happen, that there's a rebellion and that the man of lawlessness makes his appearance. (coughs) We said the it'll all work out philosophy was foreign to Paul. Sometimes we take this approach that in times theology, it's too hard to understand. I'm just going to trust that it's all going to work out according to God's plan. But that Paul doesn't approach things that way. That he takes these young believers in Thessalonica and says, you need to know about the end. You need to know about the Antichrist. And we talked last week, you won't find Antichrist listed in very many new believer discipleship materials. That's not something that finds its way in there. It's how to pray, how to read the Bible. How to understand the Antichrist is usually not a chapter in new discipleship material. But it was for Paul. Paul says, I've already told you about these things. When I was with you for six months, you got saved and I discipled you. And in those six months, we talked about the Antichrist. And that's typically foreign for us because a lot of us don't understand the Antichrist, don't understand end time theology. So we could not pass it on to a new believer at this point. This it'll all work out philosophy was foreign to Paul. And then we've highlighted over these 12 verses that this evil is all part of God's plan. The greatest evil that Satan that man can come up with will ultimately be devastated by the return of Jesus. In a breath, Jesus will bring to nothing this great attempt of evil. We said that Paul had reasons for writing this passage to show God's sovereign control over evil, to re-anchor this church in truth, and to provide encouragement to them. He's not trying to answer all their questions about the Antichrist, who he is, exactly what all he will do. He's simply wanting to encourage them to not be deceived when it does show up. We talked about the time of restraint, how God even restrains this evil until the appropriate time. That Satan can't even bring the man of lawlessness onto the scene until God says that he's allowed to. (coughs) We talked about this time of rebellion, where this man will rise through the power of Satan, oppose God. And then we talked about the fact that only those who are already perishing will be deceived by this. He doesn't convince anybody who's truly a follower of Jesus to change their mind about that. Now we come to verses 13 and 14. And it would seem that maybe this is now a break from the end time discussion. That now we're moving on to a different topic. But I believe Paul includes this discussion now about the gospel because of its relevance to what he's just said about the end times. It says in verse 13, but we'd all, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by a letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. (laughs) 
he begins a discussion about the gospel. And it flows out of this discussion about the end times. And I believe it's relevant because up to this point, he's described the most evil, wicked, deceptive time in all history. And he's talked about how Jesus is going to rule and reign over this. But there might be a lacking of personal encouragement here. I mean, he's saying that, hey, there's coming this time of rebellion, this time of evil. Jesus is going to destroy it. And he's going to bring judgment upon unbelievers. He's going to bring relief upon believers. But I imagine in this church, you're starting to have people wonder, which side am I on? Is it going to be good for me? Do I get included in the good part of what you're talking about, Paul? So Paul wants to bring this back to an encouragement from a personal standpoint. How these people are included in this plan. He wants to answer the question, will we personally stand firm? Will we survive the apostasy? Paul believes that they will. He believes that their anchor will hold. And he begins to describe their salvation. Before we get into that, though, I want to draw your attention to these terms. These are terms that we use that describe salvation. Now, what I want you to do if you're taking notes is to use the back of your notes. I want you to see if you can reorder these terms in the order that they happen for our salvation. So if we're to describe these terms to somebody, what order do they happen? If we're talking about someone being unsaved to fully saved at the end times, how do these words play out in order? So I want you to try to list them in the order that they happen. And then if you've got time, jot out a quick, quick definition that you would say these terms mean. And we're going to talk about it here in just a minute. So the order that they happen in regards to our salvation, we've got regeneration, calling, glorification, conversion, justification, adoption, perseverance, sanctification. All right. First off, and some of these you might could flip in different order depending on um, how it works. But the first one, I think the first one is the calling to salvation. By calling, we're talking about the, the call that God extends through the presentation of the gospel. Okay, God calls us to salvation. He chooses to do that through the proclamation of the gospel, which means individuals proclaiming the gospel. And we've talked about this before, that God has a plan to save mankind, but he chooses to do it in connection with mankind, meaning that he doesn't send angels to go tell the gospel to other nations. Angels weren't tasked with go make disciples of all nations. Man was tasked with that. So God chooses to save man by man proclaiming the gospel to each other. Okay, so that calling to salvation happens as we proclaim the gospel. Next is regeneration. And this is a mistake that sometimes people make with the order here. Somebody tell me what regeneration is. It's a work of the Spirit that allows you to respond to the call of the gospel. <laughs> so help me. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit where he opens our eyes to the goodness of Jesus. It's what being born again really is. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he says, you need to be born again. 
meaning you need to have your eyes open spiritually. You may have had, you may have, anybody come from the situation where you had the gospel shared with you time after time after time and you rejected it for years and then finally there was a day where it just seemed to all make sense and you came to Christ. Anybody have something like that? Okay. Prior to that, you weren't regenerate. The calling was still being extended. The gospel was still being shared, but the Holy Spirit was not doing a work of regeneration in your heart. You were blinded, the Bible tells us, to the gospel. A blinding that happens by Satan. Blinded to the goodness of Jesus. To where the salvation message is is foolishness, is what Paul says. Foolishness to those that are perishing. But it's hope and salvation to those that have received it. So the calling goes out. We're regenerate. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That makes more sense. Regenerated. So our eyes are open to the goodness of Jesus. We're, we're, we're seeing the goodness of the gospel. And then we have conversion. Where we make the decision to put our faith and trust in Jesus. We make that decision to repent of our sin. To turn from our sin. To put our faith in the work of Jesus. It's called conversion. It's something that we freely do, something that we choose to do, but God sets the the environment to where it's exactly what we want to do, and it's exactly what he wants us to do. So we respond to that gospel message, and we convert. We become a convert. We convert to Christianity. We convert to the gospel. After that conversion, or as a process of that conversion, we have justification, This is where God declares us perfect. God declares us right. Justification is where we're declared righteous. Not just forgiven, not just forgiven, we are declared perfect. And I've talked with you guys before and I've talked with my students at Trinity before. God does so much more for us than just forgive us of past sins. He earns perfection for us. His perfect life does more than just make him a sacrifice that can take our sins away. It's his perfect life that gets applied to our account, to where we're now counted as perfect, because it's perfection that it takes to get to heaven. You have to be perfect to get to heaven. And I shared with you guys last week my testimony. Up till the age of five, I was trying to be a good kid. And I told you last week, I only had one spanking in my whole life. But it was that one spanking, if necessary, that God said, hey, you're not perfect. You're not perfect. And it was at an early age, age of five, where I realized I can't do this. I can't, I can't save myself. As, as much as I try to be good, I can't save myself. I need God to declare me perfect based on the work of Jesus. So justification comes as we're being converted. God declares us righteous because we put our faith and trust in him. It's after God declares us righteous that we're now adopted into God's family. Adoption comes because we're now declared righteous. God can now welcome us into his family, welcome us into his presence because we're cleansed from sin. And not just cleansed from sin, but we now have righteousness applied to us. So God calls us through the gospel. He uses the Holy Spirit to make us want that message. 
We convert because of what we've heard. God declares us righteous. He adopts us into his family. And then what starts is a, is a process of making us holy, changing us into the image of Christ. We call that sanctification. We're going to talk more about that today, so we'll kind of skip over that one for right now. And then what we've been talking about more recently here is perseverance. <coughs> perseverance is a Christian remaining close to Jesus, remaining faithful to Jesus, staying with the gospel, staying true to that initial belief, continuing to believe everything that happened at conversion. A true Christian does not walk away from the faith. A true Christian, when they come to salvation, their, their eternal security is put into place. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit. They never walk away from the faith. So if somebody does seemingly come to Jesus, seems to follow Jesus and then falls away, they were simply never saved to begin with. They never had the seal of the Holy Spirit. A true, true Christian perseveres. That's what Paul's talking about to this church. Persevere. Make it. Don't be deceived. So that you make it to the final step of glorification. Where sin and death, suffering, everything is removed forever. We're given new glorified bodies that live perfectly in the presence of God forever. Now, a lot of times we refer to maybe this right here as our salvation. But really salvation extends to all this. Sometimes Paul talks about salvation in the past sense. He talks about glorification in the past sense. It's so assured in God's mind that Paul will write about it at times as though it's already happened. As though we're already here at glorification. But then other times he talks about it in a future sense. And he talks about those that are being saved. As though it hasn't happened yet. You're still in the process of being saved. So it's correct to view all of this as salvation. It's God taking us from unsaved to glorified. And that's what Paul draws their attention to in chapter in verses 13 and 14 now. He's described this great evil that Jesus is going to come and squash. But now he wants to encourage them personally that they're going to be protected in the midst of that. Because they personally have received the salvation that's necessary. So in your notes, number one. Our salvation results in God's glory. He starts off in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Our salvation results in God's glory. Paul immediately from the get-go starts off by saying, Praise be to God. Thanks be to God for your salvation. He doesn't write to them and say how great they are for choosing to follow Jesus. He doesn't commend them for their decision. He doesn't commend them for their willingness to set aside everything in their life and now to pursue the things of Jesus. He praises God for this. He praises God for this work that has happened in their life. He says, praise be to God. Give thanks to God for you. This is what we always do, Paul says. God receives the thanksgiving for all the work of salvation in us. He says, brothers, beloved by the Lord. 
So number two, our salvation flows from God's love. Don't, don't just read over that real quick and, and don't think that that has deep meaning there. He says, beloved by the Lord, the Lord that he just described previously as coming to wreck evil, to put an end to the lawless one with a breath. He, he, he now reflects the relationship that these people have with that same Lord. He says, you're beloved by that Lord. There's this Lord Jesus who's coming to put an end to evil, put an end to those that have been condemned, those that are perishing, those that believe this lie, those that don't believe the truth. This Lord Jesus is coming to put an end to those people. But you're beloved by that same Lord. It's two different perspectives about the return of Jesus. You've got those that will tremble in fear and those that are going to rejoice over the fact because they are beloved by this same Lord that is coming to put an end to evil. It flows from God's love. Our salvation is motivated by God's love. It's a love that we cannot possibly understand that motivates him to save us. John three sixteen, a passage that we learned very, very early on in life because of what it communicates to us about God's love. That it's because of his love. He demonstrates that love so that all can be saved. He loves the world. So he saves the world. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Verse 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I always try to bring people to this passage when they're doubting their salvation, maybe because they've committed some type of sin after their salvation experience. People that, that maybe start to doubt God's love for them because of mistakes that they've made. The encouragement that Paul offers here is that it's while we were enemies, while we were haters of God, that he loved us enough to save us. Which means he gave us his maximum amount of love on our absolute worst day. On a day when we were rebels in rebellion and wickedness and evil towards a holy God. God said, I love you. I'm going to demonstrate that love for you by sending my son to die for you. There's absolutely nothing that we can do after conversion to make us any worse in God's eyes than we were before conversion. So there's never a thing that we can accomplish or do after salvation that would make God say, uh, forget that I adopted you. Like I'm giving you back. Like you're just not getting this thing figured out. He says that, that God loved us to the max when we were at our worst. So there's absolutely nothing that we can do after conversion that would cause God's love to change for us. It's a love that we can't fully understand. We see pictures of it in earthly relationships, but we also see love relationships break down. 
A love relationship that doesn't break down between our Father. Our Heavenly Father continues to love us. He adopts us into His family and that never changes. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He doesn't start to love us after salvation. His love for us was there before our salvation. And it obviously continues after our salvation. It's a love that we can't fully understand. Now, next in my notes, I have that it's a love that was previously for Israel, but now it extends to Gentiles. I want to show you how Paul uses language here Back in 2 Thessalonians 2, let's look at it again. 2 Thessalonians 2, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. To this he called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says they're beloved and that they're chosen. These are words that were previously only true for Israel in the Old Testament. These were God's people. God had chosen them as his nation. God had bestowed his love on these people. And now Paul uses words that were previously only used for Israel. And it now extends to the Gentile population. Let me show it to you in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 7 and 8. We'll start in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We've got words about being chosen there as a nation and about being loved as a nation. This is terms that were applied to the nation of Israel. But then he gets even more specific in Deuteronomy chapter 33. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 12. Of Benjamin, talking about the different tribes. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. The beloved of the Lord. Now, if we go back to Second Thessalonians. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Now, why is it significant that Paul's drawn upon uh, what, what God said in the Old Testament to the tribe of Benjamin? Why is that significant? Okay. Why would Paul specifically draw from what God said to the tribe of Benjamin? Because he's from the tribe of Benjamin. 
if, if Paul, for some reason, doesn't know all the Old Testament, for some reason, which I believe that he would have, he at least would have known the parts that were given to Benjamin, his tribe. Because he highlights the fact that I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I've got reason to boast if anybody does, and yet I can't boast in, in myself. I boast in Christ. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, and he's taking wordage that was applied to the people of Benjamin, beloved of the Lord, and he's now applying it to this Gentile community. That should give us such hope and assurance of knowing that the God of the Old Testament, who loved his people, who took care of his people, who preserved his people, who protected his people, is the same God that loves us in the New Testament. Even though we're not part of national Israel, we are part of God's people. And we've been grafted into that people. And we now have all the rights and privileges and spiritual blessings that come with being part of God's people. It's a love that we don't fully understand. It's a love that was for God's people in the Old Testament. And that love transcends into the New Testament. And it breaks down cultural barriers. It breaks down national barriers. He loves his people. And Paul's comforted by this for these people in Thessalonica. He says, I know you're okay. I know you're going to be saved because you're part of the beloved. You're beloved by the Lord. Number three, our salvation reflects God's plan. Our salvation reflects God's plan. It says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. Now, there's a, there's a debate about whether or not the translation is correct for it to say, as the first fruits or from the beginning. Does anybody's translation say from the beginning? Okay, there's a debate between commentators about which one is, is correct. Uh, I think both are true, that, that God's plan for these people to be saved took place from the beginning, before time began. And it's also true that these people were the first fruits of the people saved in Thessalonica. So some people want to translate it to Paul saying, God chose you as the first people to be saved in Thessalonica. Others want to say, no, what Paul's trying to say is that God chose these people to be saved from the beginning. Both are true. So both translations are, are correct. Um, both just give a different spin on what Paul's actually trying to say here. But the point that Paul's trying to say is that this is part of God's plan for these people to be saved. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about what he means by, by choosing them. Now, this is a, a hot debated topic in, in Baptist churches, especially right now, the, the doctrine of election and what that looks like, predestination. What does God mean when he says those type of terms? This is hotly debated in churches, and we're not going to really get into all that this morning. But I do want to encourage you with a couple of things. I think it's really important for you to search the scriptures and come to an understanding of how salvation works and how that fits into God's overall plan. Typically, it doesn't work for somebody to try to talk about these doctrines with somebody and then come to an understanding of what they mean. It's always best for you to search the scriptures and, and understand what God has to say. I want to give you a couple of cautions with this doctrine. A couple of cautions, and then we're going to look at some things that scripture has to say that I think Paul's trying to communicate here. The first caution that I give you with this is that we can't discount this doctrine and say we don't believe it because the Bible includes terms like predestined, chosen, and elect. That's just the facts. Those words are in scripture. 
So we can't say things like, I don't believe in predestination because the words are there in Scripture. Now, we can say, I don't believe in predestination the way that you believe in predestination, and that's fine. But we have to admit that these words are used in Scripture. I mean, we've got it right here in 2 Thessalonians 2. God chose these people. So we have to come to an understanding. What does it mean for God to choose, to predestine, to elect? Because God uses those terms in his word. Secondly, my caution to you is the doctrine is always meant to provide hope and encouragement. It's always meant to provide hope and encouragement. So the point that that doctrine stops providing hope and encouragement, we've, we've misused the doctrine. It's not meant for us to sit around and debate how God works things out to the point that it, because, that it causes frustration, that it builds up arrogance in people that, that feel like they have a better understanding of something than others. It's always meant to provide hope and encouragement. And then my last caution, as you work towards an understanding of this, remember to maintain balance. By that I mean man always acts freely just as God determined he would. God never does anything that violates us and our responsibility. You're not going to find that in Scripture. Remember in 2 Thessalonians 2... These people are condemned because they did not choose to believe the truth. That's what they're held accountable for. So God never, God never teaches that he, that he removes our responsibility. There's responsibility placed on man to respond to the gospel, to respond to the truth. And if we don't, we're held accountable for that. But also... If your understanding leads you to believe that man is free, absent from God's plans, then we've gone the wrong direction. If we get to the point where we feel like man is, is completely free to do whatever he wants, then we've missed it too because now we've violated God's sovereignty. We've made man God. If, if man can do absolutely whatever he wants against God's plans, then we've now shifted the deity to man and not to God. But then I said, if you believe God predestines everything where man is now excused from responsibility, we've also gone the wrong direction. Paul uses this doctrine to encourage these people this morning. He says, you've been chosen by God to be saved. You've been, it's been part of God's plan from the beginning to save you guys, to save this church, to bring you to salvation. And he's using that as a means of encouragement to them. God's plan of salvation starts from the beginning in Acts 13, 48. This is a passage that we looked at when uh, Paul was teaching to the Jews and the Jews had rejected him. And so now he's going to go to the Gentiles. It says that they went out, um, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It was always God's plan to save these Gentiles. It was part of God's plan from the beginning. And God allows the gospel to come to these Gentiles. We talked about in Revelation 13, 8. That everybody will believe the deception of the Antichrist. Everybody whose name was not written in the book before the foundations of the world. But then we also highlighted the fact that Jesus says everybody that's supposed to come to salvation will. 
And there's not anybody that can come that God would say no to. So you see that tension there. And it's hard to reconcile at times. Because you see both perspectives in Scripture. That God's in charge. That God makes his plans. That God keeps his plans. But that he also doesn't reject anybody that comes. It says that all that are supposed to come will. But there's not anybody that can come that God would say no to. There's a balance there that Scripture presents for us as well. God's plans for us cannot be stopped, even by this wickedness and evil that's coming. God's plans to save will happen. God's plans never negate human responsibility. Though. Let me show you a quick, a quick picture of this in, in Acts. How this kind of works. Acts chapter 27. In Acts chapter 27, verse 21, Paul's getting ready to take a trip on a boat. Paul talks to the people on the ship. It says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So Paul says, we shouldn't have done this, but we're already out here. Here's some encouragement to you. We're not going to die, but the ship is going to be destroyed. That, that's, that's what I've been told. It says, verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who sail... God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul says, here's my encouragement to you, crew. We're not going to die. The God who I worship, the God who I belong to has assured me, sent an angel to tell me this. We're all going to make it. The ship's not, but we are. So, so be encouraged by that. We're going we're gonna to shipwreck at some point. The ship's going to be lost, but we're going to be saved. That's a plan of God, because God says, you're going to appear before Caesar. Paul's setting sail for Rome here. He says, you're going to appear before Caesar, Paul. So just take comfort in that. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, and a little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, or the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So here's what happened. You've got, you've got soldiers on board. You've got sailors on board. Paul has proclaimed, hey, we're all going to be saved from this. Just our ship's going to be lost. Then the sailors, as, as we're getting closer to land, they start to panic. And they try to, they try to get away. They try to lower the escape boats and the sailors are going to leave. They're going to abandon the soldiers and Paul on this ship. People that don't know how to run a boat. Paul looks at the soldiers and says, remember what I said that we're all going to be saved? That doesn't happen if these people leave. So it says the soldiers went and cut the rope so that the boats went away without people in them. There, there's God's plans. This is going to happen. But Paul doesn't just sit back and say, wow, 
apparently I'm going to learn how to drive a boat here in just a minute because all the sailors are leaving and God says that, that we're going to make it to land. That's going to be crazy how God works that out. No, Paul says, hey, if we lose our drivers, then we're not going to be saved. So don't let these sailors leave. There's God's divine plan and human responsibility. Paul doesn't just sit back and say, well, God's in control. Just let him take care of it. I'm just going to sit back and watch. No, Paul says, I've got responsibility in this plan. I've got responsibility in this plan. So God's sovereignty never negates human responsibility. Any, any wordage that's used in scripture about, about chosen and election and predestination, all those words that confuse us at times and cause tension at times, they never negate re- human responsibility. God always holds man accountable for either responding to the gospel or not responding to the gospel. Um, another example of this, Paul believes that they're saved. He believes that these people in Thessalonica are saved. He believes they're going to make it to the end. But as we saw in 1 Thessalonians, he sends Timothy to establish them in their faith, right? Remember, he says, I sent Timothy to establish you in your faith. Paul didn't just kick back and say, okay, great. These people accepted Jesus. They're saved now. They are eternally secure. They're going to make it to the end. Let's move on and let's focus on more unsaved people that we can get saved. No, Paul says, you guys have got to make it to the end. You've got to persevere. And part of the way you're going to persevere is I'm going to send Timothy to you to establish you in your faith. Paul embraces his responsibility in God's plan. He doesn't just kick back and say, God's in control. God does everything. I don't have to do anything. He takes his responsibility and says, yes, these people are saved. Yes, they're going to make it to the end. But they're going to make it to the end because I'm going to help establish them in their faith. I'm going to help them persevere to the end. So God chose these people from the beginning. He, he, he says, I want to, I'm, you're part of my salvation plan. He tells, Paul tells this church, you're part of God's plan for salvation. So number one, our salvation results in God's glory. It flows from God's love. Number three, it reflects God's plan. Number four, our salvation includes God's holiness. It includes God's holiness. He says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. We talked about sanctification on our, on our list of terms this morning. Sanctification, there's two aspects to our being sanctified. It's us becoming less sinful and more like Jesus. There's the negative aspect where God cleans up the negative. He gets rid of our sin. Then there's the positive aspect where he makes us like Jesus. Sanctification, less sinful, more like Jesus. God's grace extends to all areas of our life. He radically changes us into new people. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God doesn't just save us to get, about a, get us out of hell. He saves us to make us holy. He wants to get rid of the sin in our life. He wants to put Christ into our life. He does that through the Holy Spirit. 
and extends to all areas of our life. We become the type of people that love holiness. Remember, the people that are described in verses 1 through 12 are people that love unrighteousness. People that want to live the way they want to live, want to do the things that they want to do. They reject God's commands. If we're truly saved, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He makes us love holiness. We become new creatures, as 2 Corinthians talks about. We have supernatural power as the Holy Spirit indwells us. He keeps us believing. He keeps us persevering. He causes our faith to grow, our love to increase, and our hope to remain steadfast. Thinking back to what what Paul's already said. He says there's coming a day when supernatural evil power is going to seek to deceive this world. The only answer for supernatural evil, evil power is supernatural good power. He says God's going to send a delusion where people that are already unsaved are going to continue to be unsaved. They're going to believe this lie. You've been equipped with the supernatural Holy Spirit to protect you. That's the encouragement that he gives to this church. Is that we have supernatural power living inside of us. Holy Spirit indwells us. He calls us to to holiness. He gives us the power to live holy. But too often times we don't live that way. We don't live like we have supernatural power in us. We don't live like we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We, we, we claim it, and this is why it's confusing to the lost world. We tell the lost world, I'm saved. I have the Holy Spirit live inside of me. And they look at our life, and it's not much different than, than theirs. And it's kind of like, for real, like you have supernatural Holy Spirit living inside of you? Because it doesn't look that way. I was telling my sixth graders, if, if I came in and said that I had supernatural abilities to play basketball, supernatural power inside me to play basketball, you would expect me to be able to go onto a basketball court and make shot after shot after shot. But if I proclaimed myself as this supernatural basketball player, walked on the court and started shooting air balls, not even getting near the basket, you'd say, uh, I don't know if you have supernatural abilities to play basketball. Like, I'm better than that at shooting the basketball. Too often times we claim to have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, but we don't live differently to where it shows that to the lost world. Paul says, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Understand that. Understand that. Submit to that. Know that he is sanctifying you. He's sanctifying you. To not be growing in sanctification is to lose assurance of our salvation. If we're not growing in our sanctification, then we don't have any reason to claim assurance of our salvation. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, so no, so one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the love of God, the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We have conversations in our family all the time about family members that, that are outwardly not making any demonstration to follow jesus they claim to be saved 
They claim to have had this conversion experience early on in life, but you don't, you're not seeing any evidence. I mean, they're making practicing sinful type choices all the time. And, and, and there's disagreement in our family about whether these people are saved or not saved. Now, I can't say if these people are saved or not saved in my family that are making willful, regular, sinful choices. What I can say is that Scripture gives me no assurance to hang on to their salvation. Because First John says, if you continue in this practice of sinning, you're showing yourself to be a son of the devil. So if we're not moving forward in our sanctification, we don't have any reason to hang on to an assurance of salvation. We have a responsibility to examine ourselves and say, am I really saved? Like, because I'm not making any choices that look like what a saved person would do. Growth and sanctification is expected. It's something that naturally happens because the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. And it's supposed to bring assurance to our salvation because we see the Holy Spirit working in us. Paul says, this is true about you, church at Thessalonica. You've got the Holy Spirit who is working to sanctify you. Number five, our salvation relies on our response. Our salvation relies on our response. It says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. There's that human responsibility again. God calls us through the proclamation of the gospel, but then we have a responsibility to believe. Going back to that pl- that plan that God has to save. Think about everything that went into play for you to receive the gospel. Most of us didn't choose the setting that brought the gospel to us. For a lot of us, we're saved because we were born in a Christian family. There wasn't a sign-up sheet about what kind of family you wanted to be born into. God blessed you by being by putting you into a, a believing family where you received the gospel for a lot of us at an early age. All of us, I think, were, were put in a situation where we were born into a country where the gospel's prevalent. Sometimes it's hard to share the gospel with somebody around here that's not heard it before, not heard a distorted version of it. God has definitely seen fit to give us privileges and advantages to where we've come to Christ very early in our life. But it doesn't negate the responsibility that we have to respond to that. Because there's plenty of people that are born into Christian families, born into this country, and they choose not to believe the truth. They choose to reject that truth. So God's plan for these people to be saved, he orchestrates to where Paul comes. Remember that vision that Paul had? Go to Macedonia, preach the gospel in Macedonia. These people wouldn't have gotten saved if that hadn't happened. It was God's plan to save this church, and so God sends Paul to preach the gospel but they still have the responsibility to believe. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's that decision to convert to convert, and then justification happens. We put our faith and trust in the truth that we're presented. What is the truth that we're called to believe? It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. John chapter 5.
Verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Talking about John the Baptist. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus says that belief for salvation rests in him. We believe the gospel, the work of who Jesus is for our salvation. Jesus goes on to share that that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector where the Pharisee and the tax collector come to the temple to pray. Pharisee comes in and it sounds great. God, I'm here to thank you. I'm here to praise you and thank you that I'm not like that guy. That, that you've made me different than that guy. That I'm not a sinner like that guy. Praise be to God that you've done something to me that made me different, made me better than that guy. And the tax collector is there to pray and he says, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, I'm not comparing myself to other people. I know my acceptance isn't based on how I compare to other people. I know it's based on my responsibility to you and I have failed. I have failed and I need your grace and mercy in my life. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Pharisee says, I'm here to present my good works. I'm here to be saved by my good works because I'm better than that guy. Salvation is a belief that we don't have any good works anymore that we can offer. and That we need Christ's perfection. It's what's going to save this church. It's what's going to save us. And it's what's going to ultimately condemn a lot of the world when the Antichrist rises and Jesus returns. Those who fall prey to the Antichrist are those who did not believe this truth. The Bible tells us why they don't believe. John 3 says they love darkness rather than light. They don't want to come to Jesus because they love their evil works. John 12 says they love the glory of man rather than the glory of God. It says that some people were were believing in Jesus, but they wouldn't profess it. They wouldn't confess it because they were afraid that the Pharisees would kick them out of the synagogue. They were scared of men. That's why many don't believe the truth. They're scared of what it would look like for them to follow Jesus. Number six, our salvation ensures our glory. Our salvation ensures our glory. Back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll wrap up with this. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. While our salvation remains future, it does not remain in doubt. You can jot down these verses if you want to. Romans 8, 29 through 30. John 6, 37 through 44. John 10, 27 through 29. These are verses that talk about how our salvation is, is assured to us. We don't have to doubt and wonder if we're going to be saved in the end. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9 says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. (coughs) That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. 
guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit that keeps us saved until the end. Which I'm, I'm completely thankful for because as the, as the hymn says, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to doubt. I'm prone to want to do what I want to do. I'm thankful that God gives us the Holy Spirit to keep me on track. To keep me saved. To keep me believing. To squash my doubts. To squash my wanderings. To keep me faithful to the end. God's whole reason for starting this process of salvation was to bring us to glory. He won't lose us and his plan won't fail. I put in my notes, Satan can't reverse our salvation. It was planned before he was even created. That's what he wants to do through the Antichrist. He wants to, he wants to bring people that have been saved back to his team. And we're told in scripture that it doesn't happen. It doesn't work. His greatest effort to deceive Christians fails. Because this plan was put in place before Satan was ever created and he can't stop it and he can't change it. Ultimately, we will bear the image of the one who saves us. Paul says we'll receive the glory of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, we get a picture of what that looks like. In verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Talking about us dying with our earthly bodies and being raised with glorified bodies one day. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, talking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That happens fully at glorification. When Jesus returns, we get new bodies, we're completely set free from sin, and we bear the image of Christ, just as God planned from the beginning. The application for us today, the application is that we need to be sure of our salvation. Be sure of your salvation. It provides the anchor of hope that we need. Be sure of your salvation. Second Peter 1.10 Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Scripture tells us to examine our salvation, to make sure that we truly have responded to the gospel. And then secondly, be encouraged in our evangelistic efforts that God has prepared his people to respond. Be encouraged in our evangelistic efforts. God has prepared his people to respond. We won't take the time to look at it, but in Acts 18, 1 through 11, we looked at this before. In Acts 18, 1 through 11, Paul is in Corinth and he is being persecuted for, for what he is doing. And he's tempted to leave. He's tempted to get out of there and move on. These people have rejected me. They don't want the gospel. They're obviously not regenerate. I mean, they're just not converting. God tells him to stay. He says, you stay because I have many people here that are mine. They're not mine yet, 
They haven't responded yet, but they are going to respond because of your presence here. You stay, you preach the gospel because I've got many people here that are mine. We moved here to Sonoy because we believe that God has people here that are his. And the way that he makes them his is through our proclamation of the gospel. It's through our proclamation of the gospel. We can be encouraged that God is going to do the work of salvation. We proclaim it. Holy Spirit works in their hearts and brings them to conviction of sin. And then they freely choose to follow Jesus. We want to be a part of that plan. He's called us to be part of that plan. He's called us to be part of that plan. I want to close our service today by encouraging you to pray individually about the individual that you are praying about for their salvation. We're putting together a salvation prayer list again here at Sovereign Hope. People that we individually are saying we want to pray for and personally take responsibility to share the gospel with. People in our life that we know are not saved, that need Jesus. And we're taking responsibility to say, hey, I'm going to get the gospel to them. And I'm going to pray regularly for their salvation. And this passage is so relevant for that because there is a coming apostasy. There is a coming rebellion. There is a man of lawlessness that's coming. And I told you before, I'm not sure if salvation happens when he gets here. I don't know if that's the end. If, if deceit sets in and he begins to lead astray everybody that's not saved at that time and only those that are currently saved at that time make it. I don't know. But I, want, I know that I want to make sure that I'm sharing the gospel regularly before that man of lawlessness shows. People that I work with, people that are in my family, people that I know that, I, that I'm, I'm sure that they're not Christians. I want to make sure that I'm faithfully taking the gospel to them before that time of deceit sets in. So I want to encourage you, and if you haven't picked an individual, then I encourage you to take that time right now. Identify somebody in your life that you say, you know what, it may not be easy, it may be difficult, there may be hindrances to how this is going to work, but I've got to get the gospel to that person. A lot of us have already identified that person. And I want to use this time as just another time of accountability where we say, hey, you put that person down. You said that you were going to take responsibility to share the gospel with them. Let's pray for their salvation now. Pray that God gives us opportunities in the coming weeks to share that gospel with them. I'm going to give you some time to pray and then I'm going to close this out in prayer.